Psalm 110. Follow, please, as I read. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He, will, he shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. If we uh, ask most Christians the, their favorite psalm, uh, what do you suspect you would get an answer? What? Psalm 23rd, 23rd Psalm? Yeah, I would say that's probably the best known, the best beloved psalm. How about the longest psalm? Psalm 119. We're st I'm still studying that one, how we're going to do that tonight. Well, I would say, yeah, though that's true, but if you ask me which of all the psalms is the most important psalm, my answer would be this one. And the reason is because this psalm is the one that is quoted over and over and over again in a number of contexts in the New Testament. Uh, for instance, if you'll hold your finger here, we'll be right back, but I just want to take you on a little tour through the New Testament. First of all, at the end of Matthew, Matthew 22, uh, the 22nd chapter of Matthew is Jesus being peppered with questions, trying to trap him. Uh, is it lawful to pay tribute? Uh, whose husband, whose wife will this woman be in the resurrection? You know, all the questions that were thrown at him. And then we get to the very end of the chapter, and he asks the question. Matthew 24, verse 41, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Now remember, Christ is simply the term for Messiah. So what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? In other words, in your understanding of Scripture, whose son will the Messiah be? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? There's a lot of things that flow out of that. Number one, he ascribes the authorship to David. The inscription tells us it's the Psalm of David, and Christ confirms that. But he also confirms the fact that the Jews themselves saw this as a messianic psalm. They didn't say to him, well, we don't believe that's talking about the Messiah. That's, that's not the son of David in view there. They clearly believe that, and Jesus is counting on them to believe that. That's what frames his question. How can the Messiah, if he's the son of David, be the Lord of David? Okay? Go on over to Acts chapter 2. And of course, a number of these speak of the enthronement of Christ. We sang about that a moment ago. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. Acts chapter 2, verse 34. 
Well, let's back up. Verse 33, therefore, Acts 2.33, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes, thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So notice how Peter again points out that Christ, the ascended Christ, is the one in view in this psalm and that he has now fulfilled it. Go to 1 Corinthians. And this is uh, sort of an example of several that speak of putting things under his feet, as Psalm 110 says, to make him his footstool, to rest your feet on these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 24, let's start there. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he hath put down, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So notice that Christ is reigning in the heavens. He is the risen Christ has ascended to the throne. And he will reign there until all his enemies are put under his feet. Uh, Hebrews. Y'all may recall that when we were in our study of Hebrews, we kept being referred to this passage over in Psalm 110 over and over again. I'll give you a few examples here. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1. Verse 13. Again, contrasting Christ with the angels, he says, But to which of the angels said he, he God the Father, at any time sit it on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Again, quoting out of Psalm 110. Look in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21. Contrasting his priesthood with the Levitical priest, he says this, Hebrews 7, 21, For those priests, the Levitical priests, were made priests without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swore and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And then in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10 verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So there you go, just to give you a brief overview of the numerous places in the New Testament that this psalm is referred to. And what is especially interesting is that it is referred to as the proof, as the proof text for many of the assertions about Jesus Christ, where He is, His authority and His power, what He's doing there, and the fact that He is to reign until all His enemies are to be put under His feet. Now, we have seen in our study of the Psalms a number of the Psalms that have what I would call a double fulfillment. In other words, we're talking about, for instance, the beauty of the King, His glory, and we can say, well, this applies to David, it applies to Solomon, 
But in a fuller way, it applies to Christ. It's like a double picture, the near picture plus the far one. But when we come to Psalm 110, we're looking at something here that is very, very unique. There is no now fulfillment. There is no earthly fulfillment. Because there is no king in the line of kings of Israel that would fit this picture. This is purely speaking of a coming king, the Messiah, and as we pointed out from Matthew 22, we see that even the Jews themselves understood that. They believed that. There just simply wasn't because of the fact that here we're going to see a king who is also a priest. And that is the two offices that were kept strictly separate in Old Testament Israel. Remember that Saul intruded into the priestly office at one point and for that was punished by losing the kingdom. At another juncture, Uzziah, the king, decided to offer, burn some incense in the temple and he is struck down with leprosy. In other words, it was no, it was a no-no for a king to officiate as a priest. And yet here we see both of those offices brought together. There is this reigning son who is on a throne, all power and authority given to him. His enemies made his footstool, who is also our priest. So you understand what I'm saying. Christ alone, the Messiah alone, can be the fulfillment of this psalm. Nobody else need apply. Nobody else is going to qualify. The only other person in history that qualified that we know of in the Bible as a king priest is this rather mysterious, obscure character in Abraham's day, Melchizedek, whose very name meant the king of righteousness, but he was also king of Salem, that is Jerusalem, and priest of the Most High God. And notice our text is telling us that this one sitting at the right hand of God is a priest after Melchizedek's order, his type, his kind. We'll say more about that in just a minute. So let's just examine it. It's pretty short, pretty easy. Uh, verse 1 tells us where the king is. He is seated not on an earthly throne, but he is seated at the right hand of God. Now that doesn't mean that God has a body uh, with a right hand. Uh, the Mormons, of course, hold that. Joseph Smith and his vision in the sacred grove. You say that with very hush, reverential terms around Mormons. But anyway, when he was in the sacred grove, he had this vision of God as a person, God the Father. Saying two, He saw two figures. And one of them says, This is my beloved Son, hear ye Him. So Mormon doctrine, uh, they are not Trinitarian. They believe in three different persons, three separate persons, not three three in one, but three separate gods. Okay? I mean, who can argue with Joseph Smith in the sacred grove? I mean, that settles it for me. I don't know about you. But uh, notice that we have here him seating at the right hand of God, and Mormons will refer to uh, whenever the Scripture speaks of the eyes of God, the ears of God, the arm of God, the feet of God, they say, well, see, that proves he has a body. And my reply was always out of Psalm 91. talks about under his feathers we will trust that it must mean he has wings and feathers like a chicken um, if you take these things literally. Clearly what we mean by that is the same thing we mean when we say someone is our right-hand man. It is, this is the person that we are looking to to execute 
the will of the boss. And that's what's going on here. We would sometimes refer to this, my friend E.W. Johnson used to say that Jesus was construed the prime minister of the universe. And he would use the illustration of the queen in England. That the queen, you know, they got a queen over there, and I'm not sure whatever she does except go around sort of like this all the time. The real power in England is in the hands of the prime minister. The queen has more or less given the power over to the prime minister who executes the function of government. And that's a good illustration for what is happening here, that God the Father is turning the spotlight on his son, and his son has been constituted the prime minister of the universe. It's his king. It's the one who is going to execute his will and his judgments. Essentially, in John 5, Jesus says, God has turned over everything to me. It's sort of like the servant that went to fetch a wife for Isaac. Remember, he goes away and finds Rebecca, goes to her family, and says, my, my master had a son in his old age, and he's given everything to his son. You remember, he, he sort of, you ever notice how he sort of lured her on? He started handing out the gold, handing out the jewelry, and uh, kept telling them uh, how rich he was, and I've got this rich master, and he's given everything to his son. And by the time they got around to saying, honey, you, you want to go with this guy? Yeah, she was willing. She, she wanted to go check this thing out. Yeah, she's going. Uh, in a sense, the same thing is going on, that God has turned over in what we call the mediatorial kingdom of his son, that God has turned over to the Messiah the running of the universe, the, the executing of his purposes. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that unfolds in just a minute. But God has, as it were, turned the spotlight of glory on his son so that if you want to deal with God, you're going to have to deal with the son. You want to get to God, you're going to have to go through the Son. You want to pray to God, you're going to have to come to Him in the Son's name. You want to be saved, you're going to have to deal with the Son. You, you get the picture? We're going to see later on that you in the day of judgment. Guess who's going to be doing the judgment? Jesus said in John 5, all judgment has been committed to me. Paul preached that on Mars Hill. God is appointed today. He's going to judge the world by that man concerning which He's given us assurance in that He raised Him from the dead. What man is He talking about? The God-man, Jesus Christ. So here is the, the way you would say that, is that God has set his son at his right hand. He's in the seat of power, the seat of glory. But notice what Jesus brought up to in, at the end of Matthew 22, is that we have obviously two persons here. The Lord, Jehovah, said unto my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. And though we are Trinitarians, we believe in one God, not a bunch of gods, just one, but we believe that that God subsists in three distinct persons. And although it's not clearly spelled out here, we see the beginning of Trinitarian thinking here. That this one who is Jehovah God declares of his son, or this other person, Adonai, God, my Lord, to sit at his right hand. Now, you say, well, why wouldn't it say Jehovah said unto Jehovah? Or Adonai said to Jehovah. Well, keep in mind that the mediatorial kingdom is of Christ as man reigning on the throne. I've emphasized this before, and I'm not sure if it's come across like it should. 
you say, well, wait a minute. If, if, if Jesus is the Son of God, if He's the second person of the Trinity, hasn't He always had all power, all authority? Well, certainly as God. But we're not talking about Him as God. We're talking about Him as the God-man, as the Messiah, as the exalted, glorified man at the throne. That's what's new. That had never happened before, you see. Before the ascension of Christ to the throne, there had never been a man occupying that seat. I mean, does that does that click? We're talking about one of us seated on the throne, running the show. Now, he's the God-man, true, but it is in his capacity as the man, the God-man, that he sits and executes this office. And that's what we mean by the mediatorial kingdom of Christ. We'll say more about that in just a minute. But that it is as he does it. That's what's peculiar about the fact that he has been exalted to this high office is that now a man sits at the right hand of God. And, of course, he's to sit there until his enemies are made his footstool, put under his feet, subjugated to him. So, in verse 2, not here we see where he's reigning. Now we're going to see how he's reigning. By what power does he reign? And notice it is the Lord who sends out the rod of his strength out of Zion. The Lord again, Jehovah, will send the rod of his strength. It speaks of his scepter, of the power by which he executes his office. It's reminding us that his function or his role, his office as king, is not purely a title. This is not honorary. But there is power to back up this authority. You understand in English, we use the word authority in two different ways, or power in two different ways. By power, we may speak of the authority of something, and in Greek, that Greek word is ekosia, or by power, we may mean the actual might and strength necessary to do something, and that in Greek is called dunamis. One word, power, in English is translated from those two Greek words. They're very different words. One speaks of the power, the authority of the office. The other speaks of the actual strength and might. For instance, the policeman walks out here on Goodman Road, blows his whistle, throws up his hand. I'm not sure that's a good idea on Goodman Road. But anyway, and, and presumably the cars all come to a stop. He stopped them by his power. His authority. Superman, on the other hand, gets out here on Guzman Rose, lays hold of the bumper and makes them stop. He stops them by his dunamis, his power. So notice that this is, one speaks of his rank, of his office. That's verse 1. He's in the highest office of the universe, the right hand of God. The second verse speaks of the might, the dunamis, the power that backs this office up. I've told you about Cattle Mills, the cop over there when I was growing up, had this 1959 Chevy, that if we learned right quick that if you hit Cattle Mills, the city limit, with full speed, that 70 miles an hour, and never slowed down, this guy could not possibly catch you in that 1959 Chevrolet. 
He had the power, the authority, but didn't have the dunamis. Didn't have the horsepower to back it up. That wouldn't work everywhere. Cattle mills, that, that worked. Okay? That's the idea. And notice here that God is giving him the authority, the strength, and he's ruling out of Zion. And this clearly, I mean, all we have to do is just do a survey of those passages we read earlier in the New Testament to see that we're not talking about an earthly throne here. We're talking about a throne at the right hand of God in the heavens. So this is the heavenly Zion. It's one of those passages that gives you a clue that there's another Zion besides the one that's that ridge on which Jerusalem was built over there in the Middle East. There is the one that Paul's talking about in Hebrews chapter 12 in the heavens, and this clearly is that one. He is ruling out of Zion, and he is ruling, and this is important, in the midst of his enemies, not in the absence of his enemies. And you're, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, if Jesus was really on the throne, then all these sinners wouldn't be out here sinning. They wouldn't be doing all this stuff. All these enemies wouldn't be running around. Well, he's ruling in the midst of his enemies. They don't want him to be on the throne. It's not making any difference. He's still running the show. See the point? And then notice verse 3, another thing about his power. In other words, here we see it in two respects. We see it in respect to his enemies that he's ruling in the midst of his enemies. On the other hand, his own people shall be willing in the day of his power. Now, this is a wonderful verse for Calvinism. How is it that we are willing? Well, we are his people. And his people are willing in the day of his power. They're not willing before then, but in the day of his power, they're willing. In fact, the word here is not so much an adjective we would say that you're a willing person is speaking of a adjective participle here. This is a noun. And you would say, if you wanted to say it literally, I suppose you'd say his people will be willers, willers in the day of his power. They were want, wanters. <laughs> you know, we talk about whosoever will. Well, whosoever won't, that's what we know. The wanters but they will become willers in the day of His power. They will become willing servants of Messiah in the day of His power. It's speaking of what Paul is talking about in Romans 12, that we present ourselves living sacrifices, presenting ourselves to God. We're sort of like a soldier presenting himself for duty before his commander. And so it is that His people become willing in the day of His power. And notice this second phrase in the Beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Uh, it speaks of his everlasting freshness, his everlasting life. He's not getting old. I'm glad. Getting old is a bummer. It's not for wimps. Some of you young folks are going to learn that. Uh, but notice the idea contrasted with Levitical priests who got old and died and had to be replaced. Well, this king is never going to have to be replaced. That's one thing about the kings of Israel. They were born, they reigned a while, and they died. Another guy comes and he reigns a while and he dies. Not so with our Messiah. And then verse 4 is probably the most important verse of the most important psalm. That the Lord, again Jehovah, has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Order of Melchizedek, 
the kind, the type of priest that Melchizedek was. And as I said earlier, it's a king priest. The very thing that kings and priests could not be under the, under the Levitical system, that's the kind of priest that Jesus is. Now, you remember we discussed this back when we were going through the book of Hebrews. And I said at the time that I could almost hear the Jews saying to Christians, well, you know, you Christians, y'all are sort of grasping at straws here. On the one hand, you want to make Jesus a priest. You say, he's your priest. But on the other hand, you know very well that Jesus did not come from the tribe of Levi, where the priests come from. You know he came from the tribe of Judah, and there's nothing in the law that says one doggone thing about the tribe of Judah as far as the priesthood is concerned. And so you've got this problem. You've got a Messiah from Judah that you want to be your priest, but he's from the wrong tribe. So you make up this thing about him being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, because that gets you past your problem. You, you, I'm, I'm putting myself in the place of a Jew arguing against Christians, saying, well, you know, y'all are just making this up, trying to figure out some way that Jesus can be your priest. But if I'm a Christian, I would turn around and say, wait a minute, we're not the ones making that claim. David is the one making that claim. A thousand years before Jesus is born, David is saying that the Messiah will be a priest after the order, the type, the kind of Melchizedek, not the kind of priest of which Levi is. So you you understand that this is not some figment of Christians' imaginations trying to, after the fact, sort of monkey with things in order to explain how this can possibly be. The Jews' own book prophesies that Messiah will be exactly this kind of priest. Now, what does this mean practically to us? When you say that Jesus sits at the right hand of God, if I asked you, give me a word that explains that relationship between he and you. If he's at the right hand of God, what does that make him to you? Wasn't the word I wanted, Billy Joe, but yeah, we're co-heirs, but I'm just, I'm just, you're, you're too deep for me here. <laughs> Lord, you're right, king, another, another term. He's Lord. That's what Peter says. God has raised him, set him down at the right hand. God has made that same Jesus you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's made Lord. What makes him Lord? He's seated in the right hand of power. He's at the right hand of God. Okay. But when we speak of him being our priest, after the order of Melchizedek, what word sums that relationship up? Media, okay, these are, these are synonyms. It's not the one I'm looking for. I'm going to keep fishing. Priest, this similar. There's another word. We use it all the time to speak of Jesus. Christ, that's... Savior. Thank you, Daryl. Bail us out here. Savior. That's what the priest's job, the, the king's job, the Lord's job is to rule you. The priest's job is to save your soul. He's to do whatever's necessary to cleanse you of your sin. You understand what we're saying? That's not the king's job. The priest's job is to do what is necessary to purge you 
of your sin. That's what we call saving us. He saved us. In one sense, Christ is at the right hand of God as our Lord to rule us, to direct us, but He is at the right hand of God as our priest to save us, to cleanse us from our sins. That's what the priest's job was. He did whatever's necessary, whatever the law required for forgiveness for the people. That's His function. And so when we say that Jesus is our King and our priest, what we really mean is He's our Lord and He's our Savior. These are the two aspects of His reign. And and those other words are correct. Yeah, they just weren't the ones I was fishing for. Okay? So notice here, we have this idea that He is to be our priest after the kind of Melchizedek. And two things we ought to take note of is, first of all, the first phrase of verse 4, the Lord has sworn. And the reason that becomes important is because the book of Hebrews says it's important. That the Levitical priests were not made priests with an oath. But he was. Now, somebody explain to me what what would be the importance of that. What is the writer of Hebrews telling us when he said Levitical priests were not made priests by virtue of an oath? But in the case of Jesus, God swore. You see it right here. The Lord has sworn. What, what, what's he saying to us? Why, why is that important? Anybody got an idea? Go ahead and launch out there. Just When he swears an oath, The point is, as the next phrase says, he will not repent. The Levitical priesthood, was that a forever priesthood, an unending priesthood? Apparently not. It was brought to an end. That this time, this priesthood will never end. He is a priest forever, and God will never Repent. He will never change his mind. There will never be a need for another priest. As in relationship to Levi. Okay? That's certainly one aspect of it. Anybody see anything else? What what would be the sense of swearing an oath? Does swearing an oath make God's word more certain? No. But keep in mind, there are times, and what you were pointing out here a while ago, is the fact that sometimes God has laws that are temporary as opposed to permanent. And the Levitical priesthood was the temporary priesthood. Christ is the permanent. So there are times that God has a permanent... He may say something for the time being that is not going to be true always, okay? But this clearly is. But when God... One of the old Puritans said, when God speaks, you ought to listen. When He swears, you better take note. And swears in the sense of swearing an oath. Because an oath, as the book of Hebrews will tell us, is for confirmation. It is to make certain, not the one who says the oath, his word's supposed to be true whether he swears an oath or not, but for the person receiving his word, that he has a double reason to believe it. 
God said it. His word is true. He's a God of truth. But secondly, when He confirms it with an oath, you better believe it. It is absolutely sure and certain, and it will never be altered. That's the sense of this notion of Him swearing with an oath that Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right, then the last three verses speak of the function of Christ as the judge. He is the Lord, He is the Savior, but in respect to the lost, He is their judge in a very sort of Old Testament way. It's put here that He will strike through kings in the day of His wrath. In other words, there is coming a day when the king on the throne is going to be angry. Uh, We see that in the book of Revelation. When the wise men, the mighty men, call on the mountains and hills to hide them from the face of Him that sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. We don't think about lambs getting angry, but in this case, the Lamb on the throne is going to be angry. And notice He strikes through the kings. He fills the places up with dead bodies, wounds the heads of many nations or countries, and then this rather strange figure in verse 7 of stopping to get a drink of water in the process. I mean, all that king killing, you know, works up powerful thirst. But it's uh, sort of alluding to some of the Old Testament battles where in the midst of the battle they would stop and drink and refresh themselves from the waters. And so the sense is is that he will uh, execute wrath and vengeance and will not be diminished in the, in the process. Um, Okay, two things. First of all, I want you to realize that this situation that we're seeing prophesied here was in fact prophesied somewhere else, and that is in the book of Zechariah, chapter 6, where Zechariah, who was a post-exilic prophet after the Babylonian captivity, is told to take Joshua, the high priest, in his day. Now, that's not the Joshua fight, Joshua fifth the battle of Jericho, all that. No, this is a later Joshua who is the high priest. And he's taken him into this guy's house and he's to take crowns and put crowns on this priest's head. And then he's to say, Behold the man whose name is the branch. You remember the branch was a code word for Messiah. In other words, you want to know what the branch is going to look like? It's going to look just like this. He's going to be a priest seated on a throne. He'll be a king priest. And so there, and by the way, Joshua, it's just the Hebrew form of Yeshua, Jesus. He has the same name. He's going to look just like this. He's going to be the branch man from Branch Town. That's what Nazareth means, Branch Town. Olive Branch, I suppose. Okay? He's going to be a man, Joshua, Yeshua, seated on a throne who is your priest. That's what we're being told here. And then, before we close, that passage over in Matthew 22 that we read earlier is how is it that Jesus can be the son of David, but David's Lord? I mean, the order of nature, the son is never the Lord of his father. And it's interesting, isn't it, that they ask Jesus question after question, you know, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? He says, show me a corn. Render unto Caesar things that are Caesar and things that are God's unto God. Okay. Then the one about the woman who had the seven husbands and one of them dies. I think she put something in her coffee just between you and me. But when you get to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? And he said, you don't know what you're talking about. 
in heaven they neither marry nor give in marriage. In other words, he just answers their question like that. And then he says, let me ask you a question. They asked him a whole bunch of questions. He just answered them like that. And he says, now it's my turn. Turn about fair play. If David is talking of the Messiah here, and if the Messiah is David's son, how can he also be David's Lord? They couldn't answer him. But Jesus, the Bible does answer that. Over in the book of Revelation, where you see Jesus, and he says, I am the root and the offspring of David. I am David's root. I'm his progenitor, his originator, his creator, and I am his offspring. The mystery of the incarnation is that he is both David's Lord and yet he's David's son. At the same time. Interesting stuff. Okay, y'all, um, any questions here? We'll lay this to rest. Uh, like I said, of all the Psalms, this one probably is the most important because it affects our theology in ways that no other Psalm does, and it is constantly being quoted in the New Testament. That's how important it was. Yes, ma'am? Yeah, <laughs> I think we will know a lot more. I mean, clearly there are mysteries, um, and, and this is one of them. How can it be that David is addressing his son as his Lord? But yet the Scriptures clear those things up for us, and we understand it lies in the fact of the, of the two natures in the one person of Jesus Christ, that he's both divine, the Creator, David's beginner, his root, but he's also human. He's also David's offspring. And yeah, you can never really get to the bottom of the incarnation. Yeah, how could you explain that? Billy Joe? Firstborn of every creature. Yeah. If, if you've stated in theological categories, you say this, that Jesus, when he became a man, did not cease to be who and what he was but he became something he had not been. Let that sink in. He didn't cease to be who he was. He didn't quit being God. In fact, the more you think about the ridiculousness of saying he quit being God, how do you quit being God? One of the attributes of divinity is eternality. You you have an endless life, so you can't stop being God. But what you can do is what he did, and I gave the analogy of this friend of mine in Phoenix stripping off all his clothes heading to the women pool in the backyard that Christ can lay aside the trappings of divinity. Or we might call it the perks. We know what that word means. The perks of divinity. He lays those things aside, empties himself, connoted himself, the Greek word there in Philippians 2, and then took upon himself our nature. So he didn't quit being God, but he quit appearing as God. He laid aside the trappings of divinity, and then he took upon himself what he had not been before, a man. Became a man. Became a real man. In Jesus right now in heaven, what is he? 
Is he uh, like Casper the Friendly Ghost floating around up there? Is he an angel? What is Jesus in heaven right now? He's a man. He'll always be a man. He has taken upon himself our nature for eternity. Yes, ma'am? I'm, oh, I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm trying. What's that? Does he have... For us, for us, are you talking about plans for us? Oh, oh, yeah, that's very possible that he may have other things that we don't, we're not even privy to. Uh, but what you're saying is that, yes, God, who was, in a sense, before he created anything, was complete and perfect. He needed nothing outside of himself. In other words, he didn't need a universe. He didn't need man or angels to complete himself, to be fulfilled. He wasn't lonely, as we sometimes hear preachers say. You know, he was lonely. He wanted somebody to fellowship with. But there is a sense in which God loves to display his glory. And the universe becomes the stage on which he will manifest himself. In order to make his glory known, he must have rational creatures, men and angels, that are able to comprehend. They must be made in his image, meaning they must have the capacity to recognize his handiwork and to commune with him in a personal sense. A rabbit can't do that. But men and angels, rational creatures, are able to fellowship with God and are able to think his thoughts after him as the philosophers say. And so there's a sense in which God has, has displayed, put His glory on display for the moral universe and has created a universe and creatures capable of perceiving that glory. And that's us. And did He need to do that? No. But in His goodness, this is what is His delight to share and make His glory known. It's sort of like getting married. Do you really need to do that? Well, no. But we say, well, we do it anyway in a weak moment. (laughs) Because we find a need to have someone to share life with, in a sense. That's a terrible illustration, but you understand what I'm saying. We don't have to. It's not that we couldn't be happy without it but that we find in marriage the laboratory, the environment whereby we're able to share ourselves with another person. But you're right. I mean, we're, we're dealing here. And the incarnation, Sue, back to what you were talking about, you're talking about mystery. Of we're talking about the eternal God becoming temporal man. We're, we're talking about infinite power becoming a little baby. We're... We're talking about the God who is everywhere now being confined. We're talking about the God with all power in His hands, now a little baby cleaving to His mother's breast, having to draw His nourishment out of one of the creatures that He Himself created. Now this is, this is mystery, folks. And, and when you think of the resurrection, we're dealing with that, you know, come Easter Sunday, you consider who this is, the mystery is not so much that he rose from the dead, it's that he ever died in the first place. (laughs) How could he who is life die? 
but yet united with man, he can die. That's what now enables him to die. He could never die before, but being one of us, he can die. He can suffer the penalty for our sin. Couldn't do that before, but being made man, he now is able to suffer in our place what man's sin deserves. So yeah, I mean, there clearly there's things here that we'll be marveling at throughout all eternity. Maybe we will never know. We'll never know completely. I'm convinced in heaven we're not going to know all there is to know about God. We will be filled to our capacity, but it's sort of like a cup. Um, it's maybe full, but then there's a big gulp over here. It's fuller in the sense it's full too, but it's bigger than this one. There's a sense in which we will grow, I'm convinced, in our knowledge of God even in heaven. It's a good question. Uh, somebody put on one of the Facebook uh, last day or so uh, just saying by the process... Oh, it's Miles McKee. Um, sends out his Wednesday word. Barry, did you see that today? And he was talking about that in if you're going to be a mediator between God and man, you, in other words, if you want to be a mediator, a priest, then you've got to be able to reach infinitely high. You've got to lay hold of God in the heavens, and you've got to reach infinitely low. You've got to reach down to sinful man in the gutter, and you bring the two parties together. And Miles just ended his little article by saying, you got any other prospects of someone who could reach infinitely high and infinitely low? said, Muhammad, Buddha, Gandhi. Jesus says, by the process of elimination, you just got one choice here. You just got, well, there's only one possibility. You could argue, well, he didn't do it either, but you sure can't put forth another candidate. It's either Jesus or it's, there's not going to be one. You see what I'm saying? And, and notice the way Christ is framing his question. He expects them to know that this is the Messiah. This is David's son. That's the answer he's expecting them to give, and they give it. They have an orthodox view of who the Messiah is supposed to be. But they cannot explain what's being revealed in this psalm. Well, let's go to prayer tonight. We have a mediator, a great high priest at the right hand of God. That's pretty good stuff. Able to intercede, able to save, able to cleanse. A priest with all power and might in his hands. He's the one in whose name we come, whose merits we plead. So... What do we want to ask for tonight?